Well, good morning. Our passage today is Psalm 139. We're going to read the first 16 verses together. If you would, would you stand as we read God's holy, authoritative, and inspired word? Psalm 139, 1 through 16. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path. Am I lying down and are acquainted with all my ways? Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. Lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these comforting words from your word, the the comfort of knowing that there is nowhere that we are not in some way known by you, whether it is where we are physically, whether it's what we're thinking, you know our needs, you know our days before they were even begun. Father, that should be a comfort for all those who call upon your name. And so, Lord, we thank you that uh, you are a God who's sovereign over all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this first section of Psalm 139, like I was praying, is either a comfort or it is a great concern. <laughs> it depends on your relationship, right, to the Lord. When we read that God searches us and knows us and that he knows when we sit down and rise up, that he discerns our thoughts from afar and that there is no place to hide from his presence, not even in the highest heavens or the lowest depths, all of that can be incredibly comforting to the one who is living in humble obedience to the Lord. And it can be, if we are in rebellion, in contrast knowing that there's no place to hide from God's omniscience and omnipresence, that can be a terrifying thought. After all, when we sin, we usually attempt to avoid God either by trying to ignore our sin, as we talked about last week, or by running from him altogether. And every time we ignore our sin or hide from God, we are telling him, my way of navigating this particular situation is better than yours. My wisdom and skill are more efficient, more effective in this moment than yours. 
And in the Bible, most who try to run from God, whether it's someone like Elijah or Jonah or others, you know, all of them would loudly say and, and fiercely deny, we believe in, we have not stopped believing in God. That's what they would, that's what they would proclaim. You know, Jonah, we mentioned him last week with regard to him crying out from the depths as we looked at Psalm 130. I mentioned him again this week because he's probably the best scriptural example of someone trying to hide from God. Elijah might be the next one where he, he runs and hides in a cave in the midst of persecution. Both of those men never stopped believing in God. They just didn't want to face the consequences of that belief. Elijah's issue is fear. Jonah's issue is disappointment with God's plan to save the Assyrians. Both men choose to serve themselves rather than to serve God. Elijah runs away, hides in a cave. Jonah decides that his personal comfort is more important than God's glory. And so he tries to hide at the bottom of a merchant boat. And all the things that God asks of you, they are hard. Whether it's to stand strong against persecution and the threat of death like in Elijah or you know, to accept God's call to share the gospel to the worst of sinners as Jonah was commanded to do to Nineveh. But perhaps hardest of all is this, that God asks you to die to yourself. To say no to your flesh. Both want your allegiance. Elijah and Jonah simply did what we often do. They chose their short-term, self-centered, earthly desires over the Lord's plan and purpose. And each discovered that not only is it impossible to escape God, but that there's only misery to be found when we exalt ourselves instead of, of the Lord. Are you trying to run from God? Are you finding that he will not let you run? Do you find that instead that he pursues after you and the result is chaos and misery in your life? You see, it's always, escape from God is always a spiral downward. That's what it is. It's like the prodigal son who's out when he escapes from his family and his obligations and ultimately is God and thinks that he will be taking the upward path of self-fulfillment and entertainment, and instead he finds himself spiraling downward into the pig slops. That's, that's what escaping from God is like. And if you are running from him, if you are avoiding being obedient to his hand in your life, and you think that you are not seen, how is that going? And if you think it's going okay right now, it won't for long. The, the fact is you're probably going through the motions in that sense. Existing without purpose. If you are any of those things, then you need to know a few important matters. First, God pursues you. And while you can try to run, you can't hide. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, wrote, I had always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. I had wanted to call my soul my own. And you have to picture me, he says, alone in that room, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. It's <laughs> a good quote. If God pursues you, 
There is no place to go. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? He says, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And if I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night is like light. Isn't that a good passage? Even the light, the darkness, is as light to the Lord. Now for Elijah in a cave in the wilderness or Jonah in the bottom levels of a commercial boat, God spares no expense in going after them. He causes a storm for both of them, right? Don't think that just because you are one person in the world's billions of people that God will not cause a storm for you. After all, he has already paid the supreme price of sending his son on your behalf. And you belong to him. Second, if you are God's child, the stormy chaos that he may unleash in your life in the midst of your sin and attempts to run is not punishment. It is intervention brought on by his fatherly affection rather than his wrath against sin. God's wrath was already spent against his son. But he will not slow or stop in the process of disciplining you out of his love. And interventions like that are for those who are in great trouble and don't realize it. That's the point. If you are in the midst of trying to ignore your sin, you know, we talked about confession and repentance last week, but if you are still in that other, if you're over here, you've not yet gone to confession, you're still trying to run from sin and its consequences, you may not realize the kind of self-destructive path that you are on. You are living in denial, and God knows that. And if you are his, he will not let you stay there. Would it have been better for Elijah or Jonah if God had left them alone like they wanted? No. It would have been far worse. It was an act of mercy to pursue them and bring them to the end of themselves. And I like the quote that I read this week. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. Think about that. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is your freedom. God may need to free you from yourself. You may think that ignoring your sin or running from God will make you free. Instead, what it does is it makes you a slave to your flesh, to fear, to prejudice, Whatever it is with which you're struggling. And the lesson is that you will only experience true life and true freedom when you stop running from God and start running to God. As I said a moment ago, God has already intervened in your life when he sent his son. And Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. You, my friends, have been set free from slavery to sin. You have been given life from death. And as a result, you belong to the Lord. 
He bought you. He purchased you at a great price. That is a good thing. Do not run from him. He won't let you. (laughs) Nor do you want him to let you end up like the prodigal. Are you facing a difficult season in your life? Are you struggling with trying to control your situation? Are you wrestling with despair over consequences that have spiraled out of control? Are you looking to yourself for rescue? Are you trying to put distance between you and the Lord because you know what he will require of you to change? Because you know what it means to have to confess and repent And the thought of giving up those things that you think in this moment are giving you great pleasure, too hard to think of sacrificing. Well, God's mercy is such that he will track you down. And when God says that he goes after the one sheep that strays, don't just think that the straying sheep is always just an ignorant sheep veering off of the path. More often, the straying sheep is the one that is running, against all logic, away from the flock, away from the shepherd. I mean, you can imagine a flock of sheep eating lush grass, drinking fresh water, protected from enemies, all on all sides by an all-powerful and loving shepherd, and out runs this one sheep, and you can imagine if it was in sheep talk, <laughs> you know, just running off on their own, thinking they have something better In the distance. And you know, where are you going? What are you thinking? That's danger out there. That's death out there. And the shepherd goes after the sheep. Is it possible that some of the difficulty that you're facing right now was sent from God to tell you to stop before you get an even greater difficulty? And I'm not just talking to, I mean, a lot of times we think, well, this is probably really addressed to our young men and young women who are in the midst of so many difficult life transitions and, and so on. But no, this is all ages, men, women, children, all of us need to hear this message. Sometimes for the older men and women, It's those besetting sins that we hide in our lives. And they have these consequences that we're trying to control and hold together. Maybe there's something that you've not shared with your spouse. Maybe it's something that is between you and your employer. Whatever it is, this is for everyone. And the fact is, you are possibly, and if this is describing you, You're in danger. Be comforted by Psalm 139. There is no place, nowhere to hide from God. And that should be good. Especially when you feel powerless and abandoned or oppressed. After all, as the prophet Jeremiah heard from the Lord, God said, do I not fill Heaven and earth. God is omnipresent. There's no place in which man can hide from God, nor is there some place where God is not. As we read in 2 Chronicles 15 2, 
We read that the Lord is with us when we are with him. The presence of God in that sense is being with us as the act of support of and abiding with his people. It's the kind of support that King Asa experienced as the small army of Israel. They are victorious against the larger army of the Cushites. But you can note the conditionality in 2 Chronicles 15. He is with us when we are with him. And that same passage goes on to say that to be with God is to seek him. As Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of those things shall be added to you. To be without God is to not seek him. It's to try to ignore him, to run from him, to forsake him, as 2 Chronicles 15 says. And of course, as we've seen, that doesn't mean that God doesn't know where we are. A few chapters earlier in chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles, verse 14, we read a familiar passage. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and stop pursuing their wicked ways, right? Stop running from God. Stop ignoring the Lord. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And in chapter 16, 9 of that book, we read, learn, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You see what God wants? What God desires is the heart that is turned towards him. You can't run from him. You can't hide from him. He is everywhere where you are, and he will either pursue you and intervene in your life with fatherly discipline, or he will be strong in support to you. What do you want? Psalm 77, 2 says, In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. That's what God wants from us. He wants a child who won't settle for anything less than his abiding presence and help. And that's when Psalm 139, 2 Chronicles, all these passages like this become a comfort. God will hear us. He will forgive us. He will restore us. He will give us truth and reality. He will fill our hands. The lions may grow hungry, says Psalm 34.10. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Our appetite for God must be greater than that of a ravenous lion. And the comforting truth is that he always is ready to show himself strong to those who seek him. In verse 5 of our passage, Psalm 139, David says, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. It's an interesting verse. Not only does God know where you are, not only does he provide strength to help you when you need and seek him, but he hems you in. He hems you in on all sides and lays his hand upon you. Which is to say that he protects and guides you. The watcher, the provider, is also the protector. That hemming in, we've been helping out with Corey and Hannah and the, the twin girls, and they're so tiny, right? And they are comforted by being bundled up. And they're these new little bundling blankets that have all the Velcro and you, you know, you tighten them in. Their legs are tight and their arms are tight across them. But that, that's kind of what this is, this hemming in around that God does for us. 
Well, Wendy and I are out with the older ones of our grandchildren in a crowd or crossing a busy street. We are not, you know, we are not satisfied for them to just hold our hands. We want to hold their hands, if that makes sense. Some of you know what I'm talking about because we know in the, in the midst of a busy or a distracting moment, yeah, our, our grandchild may be holding our hand, but they'll quickly let go and go running, right? So it's not enough for them to just hold our hand. We want to hold on to them tightly. And of course, most of the time, it's a mutual thing. They are insecure enough to cling to us tightly as well. But this is a way of what it is with God's holding of our hand. He, he wants us to be dependent. There's that that security that is only found in him that we hold tightly and grip tightly to him. But what's comforting about Psalm 139 is that it's saying, you know, it's not just me reaching for God and God's just passive. You know, I'm just going to grab his hand. But God actually hems us in. God actually takes our hand. He delights to lead us. As Psalm 73 says from Asaph, I am continually with you, and you hold my right hand. And the context of that verse is worth noting uh, to fully appreciate what Asaph is saying, because early in the psalm, he struggles with this apparent injustice of God. The wicked always seem to prosper. And so he says, this is, this is what the wicked are like. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. And we see the same thing in Psalm 139 and verses 19 to 22 where David's saying, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Or do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred and count them my enemies because they are against you. And in both Psalm 139 and Psalm 73, the wicked seem to prosper. In Psalm 73, Asaph looks at himself and says, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. That's the way it feels sometimes. We don't see that same thought in Psalm 139, but perhaps we can sympathize with Asaph's frustration. It is frustrating when the godly don't seem to be any worse off. I mean, when the godly seem worse off than the wicked. But then Asaph says this, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. And immediately after that confession, Asaph acknowledges God's faithfulness. He recognizes God's constant care. That's the, that's the context of you always hold my right hand. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, you could be like a Jonah and the Assyrians seem to be profiting. Why do they now get God's mercy? You can be like Elijah. Why is it that after this amazing display of God's strength and existence against the prophets of Baal, that the queen is out to take my life? Be like a Moses who comes all the way back to Egypt and stands before Pharaoh and demands that the people be let go. 
performs these miraculous signs and the elders of Israel are at first positive and they goes out and they say, why have you made our lives worse than before? And Moses just wants to walk off, right? There are times like that. And that's why the Psalms are good in that regard because they express our same thoughts. I was embittered in heart. I was like a brute beast. But then I realized you hold my hand. I realized you are in control. I realize that you love me. And as David says in Psalm 139, verse 6, that knowledge is too wonderful for me. Well, despite all that God sees and knows of our sin, he still loves us. When he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, he knew even about then our sinful ways, all our unholy thoughts, all our unkind words, all of our self-centered motives, past, present, and future. He called us to himself not because he foresaw that we would be good. Does that make sense? He did not call us to ourselves because he said, wow, that person is going to be a good person. I want that guy on my team. I want that guy on my team. That's not what he said. He knew his people and what he would make of them and what it would take. And so he sends his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He lays on him the iniquity of us all on the cross. And because of that, the Apostle Paul writes, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not count against him. And despite all that sin that God saw in your life, he cleansed you with the blood of Christ. He clothed you with his righteousness. You are still a sinner. You are a forgiven sinner. And because of that, you can be absolutely honest with God. He knows all about you. And so that's what David is expressing. This knowledge is too wonderful for me. This is actually a freeing type of knowledge. I can't go anywhere that you don't know about me. And so look at what happens there in Psalm 139. Because this is where you want to be. I probably should have done Psalm 139 before Psalm 130 when we talked about confession and repentance. But here's the thing. The rest of Psalm 139 talks about how David, in recognizing this string of thoughts, I can't go anywhere. You know all about me. This is a good thing. You actually guide me. You care about me. It's not me reaching out to you. It's you hemming me around on all sides. This knowledge is too wonderful for me that you are this kind of God. That he then goes to this last part of Psalm 139, and he says, search me and know me. Search me and know me. Reveal my sin. Now, we'll talk about that more in just a moment, but first we've got this middle section. I just want to catch it there at verse 13. God forming us in the womb. Why does the psalmist, I mean, it's so logical, what we were just talking about, so logical to go straight to the end of Psalm 139. Why is this little middle part here where you form me in the womb? Well, here's the point. The womb is the most hidden place of all. Right? It's the most hidden place of all. Even though the scientific establishment today says that those in the womb are hidden in the sense that they're not even people, that's not what God's word says in Psalm 139. Nor is it what he says in Job 31, 15. Did not he who made me in the womb make them? And the same one fashioned us in the womb. 
The Bible says we are people, and God knows us even there in the womb. And it would be, it would be probably miss of me based upon that fact and upon the most recent elections upholding a constitutional right to abort children that just passed in our state to not proclaim that truth of the sanctity of human life and pray for a removal of that ignorance. We need, friends, to inform all around us, our neighborhoods, public, about the inconsistent and continued lies We need to support these agencies that are fighting on the front line for young girls, carrying their their babies to term. And we must proclaim that God's truths are absolute. It doesn't matter that it becomes a constitutional right. It doesn't matter what the legislature has already said and what are already being given as uh, rights. As one author says, the question for the ancient was, how do I conform my soul to the objective reality around me? And the answer was worship and discipline. The question today, though, is how can I reconfigure reality to make it conform to what I want? And that author is right. He describes well what the abortion or pro-choice movement does. It reconfigures reality to make it conform to the passions of sexual immorality and lack of responsibility. As James 4.2 says, you desire and do not have, and so you kill. That is what is happening. Well, I do direct you now to the final verses of our psalm, Psalm 139, verses 17 to 18 and 23 to 24. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than sand. I awake and I am still with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. And perhaps as we've been talking about these things, as running from God... Running to God, you've realized that perhaps the God who cares about you, who knew you even as he formed you in the womb, has been disciplining you as a father does his child, intervening in your life. If so, I encourage you to pray this prayer. Lord God, what's happening right now is miserable. It's painful. And I want it to stop. Search me. Test me. Help me see what I'm blind to right now. Lead me in your paths. And for you children, I would recommend the same prayer, but add to it the willingness to seek understanding from your parents. Instead of sitting on your bed or chair with your arms crossed and your face downcast in protest to being corrected and disciplined, Pray in that moment that God will help you understand what sin is in your mind and your heart and what led you to be corrected and disciplined. Do any of you children have a hard time agreeing with your discipline and humbly confessing and asking forgiveness? If you do, then that likely is revealing an issue of pride rather than godly humility. We all struggle in this area. 
And as adults, it simply becomes a quicker move to self-defensiveness, self-justification, and arguing. But it's hugely important. God desires that we should die to pride so that his spirit will work in us. The Apostle James writes in James 1.4, Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Psalm 119.75, I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Wow, it takes humility to agree with that, doesn't it? It takes humility to say, in faithfulness, your parents, still speaking to you children, have afflicted you, and that they actually love you. Every, have you ever had your parents tell you, we're here right now in the now 32nd minute of this discipline because you're not listening, right? And you're treating this in anger as you're addressing this in me. Uh, we're addressing this in you. This is because we love you. And your thought is, well, if you loved me, you would not do this for so long. <laughs> right? Is that somehow sometimes the interaction that takes place? Just... Let me go. Let this be over. But the point is, your parents don't like that any more than you do. They're there. The affliction is for your good. And it's the same for God to us adults. God's hand upon us, if it is in discipline, is because he loves us. And he wants our attention. What I like about the end of Psalm 139 is this desire for God's inspection. I want you to know. I want to know if there's a grievous way in me. And I want to know him before it results in disastrous consequences. I think probably the worst situation for, for me as a parent is if a child, any of our children, those grown or are currently in our home, when you'd go through that process of discipline, right, and you've, you've tried to share with them that this is out of love for them and give them direction, and, and you're wondering if they're seeing the sin that you're addressing, and you let them go, and they immediately hear they've been, you realize they've just been enduring the talk, right? And then about five seconds later, they're in the living room playing again as if nothing has happened. And that is not what God desires in us. He wants us to be praying for the Lord to look into our hearts, young and old alike, look into our hearts, don't endure God's intervention in your life. Welcome it. Pray for it. Seek it. Lord, Look at my heart. Root out that which is sinful. Paul in Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not become weary in doing good. It's so important that we actually, without a weariness, right? I want you to understand the difference between the person who's weary under the disciplinary hand of God and just, please, stop. Stop, I, you know, I, I can't handle this. What that's really saying is, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. Can you please just stop? Versus the welcoming embrace of God actually revealing to us what we can do so that we can root it out, so that we confess it, so that we repent of it, and God brings joy. That's the difference. 
Job in 23.10 says to his friends, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. That's what our desire. I want to be brought through that crucible, even when it's painful, because I know what's going to happen at the end. Or for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far awaits them all. That's what we want. And God's interest in you and me is to sanctify a people who are holy, who will be with him forever. As Hebrews 12.10 says, he disciplines us for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. And Ephesians 1.4 says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This is not about getting even. This is not about you offended God and him punishing you. This is about God wanting to make you holy. This is about God wanting you to be joyful. And that's the great reward of God's interest in us. That's why when we read Psalm 139, when we need to go, it doesn't matter where I go. God pursues me to the very ends of the earth because he wants to make something of me. That is a comforting, gracious thought. So it's time to stop running, friends, to realize what God is doing, to embrace it, to welcome it, to join with him in that effort, to confess, to repent, to walk in peace. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for Psalm 139. I thank you for the fact that you pursue us, that you love us, that you desire for us to be in your life, or you desire to be in our life so that we would walk in in blamelessness and holiness before you and your kingdom. Lord God, I ask that you would uh, help us to get to a point where we aren't self-seeking, that we aren't self-justifying and defensive and blame-shifting, where we aren't weary under the, your disciplinary hand, but to where we get to actual point where we are asking for you to search our hearts. That's an attitude shift that we need, Lord, and until we get there, you are going to make it painful in our lives. Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you that you pursue us, that you don't let us just leave like a Jonah and Elijah uh, tried to do, but realize that they served a God who cares. It's in Jesus' name I thank you for these things. Amen.